I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night's School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. What happens at each school committee meeting has big implications for our students and our city. And this podcast shines a light on the decisions our leaders are making. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. We're back to sort of a longer meeting. We had a big vote last night on the budget. This concluded a months-long process for approving a $1.3 billion budget for the next school year, which actually doesn't include the ESSER funds that are coming from the federal government as well. And Jill, we also heard a presentation last night around the application numbers for next year from rounds one and two, which we'll get into a little later in our conversation. But these were two conversations around the budget and around student assignment and overall enrollment in the Boston Public Schools that had the potential to really have significant impact on our school system in addressing core issues facing the district. But in many ways, the opportunity was squandered. Hmm. All right, we'll get into that. The uh, superintendent began last night's meeting by reiterating the importance of focusing on safety in BPS in light of the recent tragedy at Tech Boston. She then discussed the State Department of Elementary and Secondary Education's audit of Boston Public Schools, which will begin next week. On March 9th, State Education Commissioner Jeff Riley announced that he will be conducting a review of the district, citing a number of concerns, including transportation issues, issues of racial equity, and academic achievement. Earlier this week, Mayor Wu testified at a state meeting arguing against state receivership of the district. Last night, though, the superintendent frame the state review as a positive step that will help to inform the strategic planning work of the district. Superintendent Casilia said this about the upcoming DESE review, beginning with a reference to a previous state review that took place in early 2020. I was happy to have this review when I first became superintendent. It helped to inform the strategic plan and the strategic work that we have been engaged in in the past two years. And it's going to be nice to be able to have this Uh, review to document the progress that we have made, as well as highlight some of the challenges that we have had in the pandemic and some of the challenges that still persist that we could use a partnership with and also provide greater focus on as we look to get better outcomes for students in this time of recovery after the pandemic. So Jill, Jill, this is kind of interesting where the Mayor went to the State Board of Education to testify against any potential receivership at the beginning of this audit that will begin next week, whereas the superintendent seems to be welcoming this audit and partnership with the state moving forward. So kind of interesting to watch. The superintendent then continued her opening comments by discussing mass in schools. And we talked about this last time about the threshold for having mass removed in the Boston Public Schools. And she noted that while previously set thresholds for removing the mask mandate have been reached, she was deciding not to lift the mandate right now, as she is concerned about what she's seeing on the news regarding the new variant. Dr. Caselius did not share what new metrics will be used by the district as a guide for lifting the mask mandate or when this would happen. The superintendent went on to talk about air quality monitoring in schools and shared again about the district's award-winning video on bullying. She finished by foreshadowing a later discussion on school assignment and enrollment, highlighting that grade seven assignments will be delayed until May. By the way, that's about at least six weeks later than are typically we get these assignments. 
And this obviously presents a huge issue for families who are choosing between enrollment in Boston Public Schools versus enrollment in MECA or charter or a parochial or a private school. Right, Ross. So, you know, actually, School Committee Vice Chair Michael O'Neill made a point about this later in the meeting regarding timing and its impact on the district's enrollment numbers. Here's what he said. Our students have choices. A lot of our students are being recruited by private schools and other schools with scholarship offers and things like that. And one of my colleagues pointed out before about at the at the early stages, you know, making a deposit versus a kindergarten seat. And it's the same thing happening at high schools as well. And so the more you can shave off at the end, you know, even when you say end of April or beginning of May, the more we can push that forward a little bit, the more important it is for our families, not only for the exam schools, but our other high schools as well, because it's all mm-hmm. students, students want to have their choices available to them. And later in the meeting, school committee member Brandon Cardet Hernandez built on these comments by talking about the district's failure to compete in terms of timing of admissions, which could result in further loss of students. I want to live in a world where everyone is adapting to BPS's schedule <laughs> and we're not having conversations about private school, us needing to adapt to private school's timeline. But that is just not the world we live in. And I think you have probably heard at nauseum concerns that so many families have around the ways that our timeline doesn't match the timeline for other education institutions across and around the city. Um, I'm speaking for my own family now. My kid is in a daycare that had a deposit for next year that was on March 10th. And I think, as folks know, we're not going to find out about my BPS placement until the end of the month. Is there any energy being directed and trying to either through coalition or through adjustments at BPS shift the timeline so that families can make informed decisions earlier and in a way that aligns to some of our competition? And if so, what is that going to look like and what can we expect? This is a key issue in terms of budget. Mr. Cardet Hernandez has been raising this issue week after week after week saying, is our budget reflective of the number of students who will be in school next year? Are we spending our money on the students who are in our buildings? Are we spending our money on empty seats across our school district? If BPS can no longer compete in terms of timing for admissions with other schools, it will drive more families away from the district as they're forced to commit to other options before knowing whether or not they've received a spot in BPS. We'll come back to this later in our conversation around this assignment timeline. The meeting moved to public comment, and Jill John Mudd, who is a longtime advocate for students at BPS, had these really powerful comments. Even after all the budget hearings, I still don't know what new ways BPS is planning to spend the $5 million in new money and the total of $120 million budgeted for English learners, or the $6.7 million in new money, plus the total of $350 million in the budget for special education. I understand you are investing dollars, but I still don't know what new programs the dollars will be buying. Next, what are the implications of spending about 55 million in soft landing funds, up from about just 5 million three years ago? It feels as though we are buying our way out of dealing with the impact of the decline in enrollment and are not preparing the public to deal with these issues in the future. John is pointing out that it's not clear how the budget and consequent spending is going to solve for key issues. Right. And then he goes on to ask what the criteria is 
that's being used for hiring the new superintendent? And does that criteria map directly to the key issues of the district? On a, the superintendent search, what are the school committee's priorities for the new superintendent? And when will we know? Uh, there are existing policies and goals approved by the school committee in the strategic plan for 2020 to 2025, in your opportunity and achievement gap policy, as well as in the five proposals at your last retreat. For years, elimination of opportunity and achievement gaps have been the number one priority of the Boston Public Schools. Is that something you and the mayor will maintain? The mayor testified yesterday about the disparities in student opportunity in BPS. I urge you to continue these output achievement goals for our Black, Latino, English learner, and special education students. And finally, he summarizes issue areas and pleads with the school committee to provide clarity on how they will solve for ongoing unresolved problems. We have added access to native language for EL and ELSWD students, and public testimony has given renewed emphasis to facilities and food. Where do you stand on these goals, and when will we know? We also heard several comments last night from the PA Shaw community. We've covered this previously in podcasts. They have been at school committee for many months now advocating for actualization of some promises that BPS made about eight years ago. Last week, the PA Shaw was informed that it will receive a fourth grade next year, but there was no commitment to continue that fourth grade into future years or to expand the fifth grade to a fifth grade as was promised by BPS about eight years ago. The one-year decision has caused a lot of anxiety among the students, their parents, and teachers at the school, which community leader Barbara Fields summed up in this way. We are dismayed that you would commit to the expansion for only one year. While we commend you on the step you've taken, you really haven't done enough. The Shaw School should be treated the same as other schools that you have, that you've had to make decisions about, namely, the schools in Rosendale, where you moved to find a sixth grade for them, even though there was not the space in the buildings. In fact, you took a vote to expand those programs without even knowing where the sixth grade would be housed. While at the Shaw School, there is, a, there is space there to expand the school to a K to five. So we're asking that you provide a permanent solution now, that you expand the school as you promised, and that you relieve the families, students, and the staff of that anxiety that will be there throughout all of next year as they get closer and closer to the time to have to either engage in this advocacy again or move to another school or parents will decide now that they're not willing to put themselves and their children through that exercise again. And they will just leave now. We're pushing BPS students out into charters and other schools because of the way we disrespect them and because of the way that we treat them. So I ask you to make the right decision by giving them the assurance and this time keeping the promise that their school will be expanded to a K to five school. I think, I think uh, Ms. Fields makes a tremendous point here about, you know, we create certainty in the Rosendale schools when we are having this conversation with K six, seven, twelves and feeders and so on. And immediately the school committee quickly came up with a solution for those schools. And yet the PA Shaw does not have a permanent solution. In last week's podcast, Jill, we talked a lot about uncertainty and its impact on the declining enrollment in Boston public schools. Ms. Fields is highlighting the exact issue 
in her testimony. This uncertainty will cause declining enrollment. Yeah, absolutely. Because if it's a one-year fix, how is anyone guaranteed that if they enroll their students, their kids there, that, that the school will continue as originally envisioned? We also heard comments last night about the Boston Teachers Union contract, individuals encouraging the district to continue the mask mandate, and there was a lone comment about the teaching of gender in schools. The meeting then moved on to a vote on the superintendent's $1.3 billion budget proposal, and there were once again pointed questions from school committee. Ross, school committee, I thought, asked some very good questions about the budget last night. What did you think of the discussion? So, Jill, I thought it was a great discussion. I was really surprised at the questions that were still asked at the school committee meeting. This was the night of the vote, and we still had school committee members asking really pointed questions about how is this budget going to avert state receivership? How is this budget going to close opportunity and achievement gaps? How is this budget going to make strides in solving for the big issues that we've been having with special education services and servicing our English language learners? And I think all the responses to those questions didn't feel very clear or concise. And they kind of related back to John Mudd's points earlier on the public comment that, yes, we understand you're putting up a lot of money in these issues, but we're really not clear about what strategy you're using. We have a big opportunity in this budget. You know, we've said this year after year, this is a historic budget. We have more money than we've ever had before, more opportunity to invest in our students and our staff members. And it seems like we're squandering this opportunity. The budget last night we heard calls for adding 119 positions. And school committee member Brandon Cardet Hernandez points this out that is on top of hundreds of other positions that are already posted and vacant. Here's what Mr. Cardet Hernandez asked. I think part of my fear and my concern, obviously, is I think we are all very much aware that there will eventually be other school closures as we have to figure out how to right size the system, which means we will have existing staff who will need to move into other places. So as we grow in a time that we know we will eventually need to restrict in size, or constrict in size rather, I think it just presents challenges that I think are worth naming in a public setting. But my follow-up question is how many vacancies currently exist in the system and what percentage of those vacancies have existed for over six months? And Deputy CFO David Bloom responds. Sorry, so this data I believe was actually pulled maybe a week or two ago. So I know you did ask right now, but it's within the last couple of weeks, which I hope is okay. So at the time we answered, there were 864 vacancies in the system, of which 179, or about 20%, were posted at least six months prior. So Jill, look, we have 179 positions that have been posted and not filled for over six months. They've been sitting there, 179 positions sitting there. Right. Uh, We're adding 119 positions in this budget, and that's not including ESSER positions, right? So, you know... When we are covering ESSER, which we haven't covered for a number of weeks now, a lot of those, you know, the ESSER funds are in positions as well. And by the way, we talked about last week, we have over a dozen school leader positions vacant, right? Like our focus should be on closing the vacancies in our schools, period. Something's going on that we're not able to fill positions, and yet we're just adding more positions. Well, close to a thousand open positions. A thousand open positions that we've heard from every different sector in our country. We're having a hard time filling positions. Right. Right. So the strategy that BPS is putting forward 
in a time of the most resources we've ever had before and declining enrollment, by the way, yeah. is to just add positions that will not be able to be filled. There's no evidence they'll be able to fill them. And, and so this could be a budget that I actually can't execute on. It's almost an unexecutable budget. Yes. So Mr. Cardet Hernandez and Dr. Stephen Elkin summed up additional issues with this budget and pointing out its failure to address three key questions for us, which, and you just hit on this in your comments, but how will the budget help prevent state receivership? How will it close achievement gaps? And how will it address the special education needs of the district? School committee members asked these questions on the day of the vote. They didn't get clear, articulate answers. They've been asking questions like this as we've been leading up for multiple months to this vote. Is this a crazy place to be on the day of the vote? Well, look, this is it's, it's such an interesting time where we typically are having conversations with the budget around cuts or making hard decisions or making hard trade-offs, right? And because there's so much money, we don't have to do that. And instead, we could be very strategic in trying to figure out how we invest these resources in things that will impact our students. And the school committee members are asking, are you being smart? Are, are you, do you have a really good strategy around how to invest these resources? And the answer is no. The answer is no. They don't have a really good strategy on how to invest these resources. But nobody's getting incredibly upset here, Jill. There's no layoffs. There's no school closures, really. I mean, we have a couple of school re reconfigurations. Mm. In a time when the district is, has so many resources, the conversation at a budget time is very surprising because typically it's, very, it's a very contentious, a very detailed conversation about what do we need to invest our finite number of dollars in. Right now, we have so much money that that conversation is not happening. Right. And so, and, and when you say it, it's not strategic, it's because it's going to be very hard to execute. We're proposing spending, like solving all of these issues by adding headcount. And yet, one, will we be able to actually hire those thousand additional employees? And two, can you pay for them in perpetuity? And this was mentioned multiple times last night. We know there's going to be a fiscal cliff. We've talked about this over and over. It's not only with ESSER, it's also with our declining enrollment over the next 10 years. And hard decisions have to be made. Mr. Mudd talked about this in his public comment. Rather than deal with the hard issues now, at a time when we have a lot of resources, we can begin to talk about how to address these hard issues. We're choosing not to. And we're delaying all of that at a time probably when we'll have fewer resources, new leadership. And we're basically just, we're basically just saying, hey, we don't want to deal with these issues right now. Let's put it off right. to somebody else's job. And we have the money to fund that decision. Well, ultimately, the budget was approved last night with just one no vote from Mr. Cardet Hernandez. The school budget now moves on to city council for approval. Next, the school committee voted on which school repair projects to submit to the Massachusetts School Building Authority. The school committee approved the projects as submitted after district staff assured the committee that other pressing projects will be completed using city capital funds. There were two reports last night. The first was a presentation on student applications and assignment, which notably we heard for the first time after the budget was already approved. Okay, Jill. So let, let's talk about these numbers that were presented last night in the applications. By the way, Mr. Cardet Hernandez has been asking for this information for a number of weeks saying, hey, how many people have applied for seats in the Boston Public Schools? That will really help us understand 
what our future enrollment will be. He's been told over and over again by district staff that no, 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 the applications have nothing to do with future enrollment, which is absolutely false. They do predict future enrollment. And let's talk about how. So Jill, round one, there's a few different rounds in enrollment in Boston Public Schools. Round one is for transitional grades. This is K-0, our three-year-old program, K-1, our four-year-old program, and grades six, seven, and nine. So this is students either entering the system for the first time or moving a school in a transition period. In 2019-2020, 3,170 students put an application in in this first round. 3,170 put an application for the first round. The next year, school year 2020-2021, 3,500 put an application in for the first round. Last year, around 2,200 students put an application in the first round. And this year, 2,700 put an application in for the first round. So we're up by about 500 from last year, but down, you know, by about, let's say, 500 to 700 from previous years. Okay. Now, there's a really important part that was mentioned last night in that the district staff said that most of those applications were put in for K-0, entry grade K-0, and for our exam schools in ninth grade because of the new eligibility requirements. What that means, Jill, is important to note that because it, there's finite number of seats at K-0 and K-1 and finite number of seats in those exam schools. So it, they will actually, because we have more applicants slightly, even though we see a big decrease from pre-pandemic years, because there's a slight increase from last year doesn't mean that we're going to have more students as a result of it because those applications are going to finite seats at those grade levels. Right. You could have a, you could have 10,000 kids apply. There's still a certain number of seats that can get filled in those particular areas. That can and will be filled. And so we'll not increase enrollment. And so now you ask, like, what about the seats that could just be filled? Like right. we could, we All have a other. lot of open seats and BPS, right? Right. So those are filled in round two. Those right. are filled in round two. And round two typically happens February and March. And that's K2, so our traditional kindergarten, and every other grade is filled in round two. So let me just go through these numbers really quickly. So we had about 2,800 applicants in round two in 1920, about 3,000 in 2021. Last year, 2,500 applicants, so significant drop. This year, Jill, we've had a little over 2,000 applicants. Wow. So we are seeing about a third drop in applicants from pre-pandemic years. This will absolutely impact enrollment. So in those grades where we could fill seats, we could have an increase, we're actually seeing a very significant decrease. So I will tell you right now, I'll go out on a limb on this. We will have a drastic decrease in enrollment next year. And for this conversation to happen after the budget is really problematic. And, and it should have happened as soon as the numbers started coming in. The school committee should have been talking about this and the trends moving forward. And they should have been saying, this is our budget needs to reflect these declining numbers. Well, and this was Mr. Cardet Hernandez's point from previous meetings and from this meeting, which was, you know, you, you have to help us understand actual enrollment numbers so that we can understand what sort of 
district in terms of size we're planning for, right? It's like, it's actually amazing that the school committee was not presented with a very clear picture of the likely scenario for the district next year in terms of how many kids will be in each class, how many kids will be enrolled in special ed programs, how many will be ELL students. I mean, the fact that you don't have a clear picture in terms of numbers, but then have to vote on a budget that is based on numbers. It's, I don't know how they did it. And well, we, we, I know how they did it. In previous meetings, we've heard over and over again from district leaders, don't worry, if we build it, they will come. We'll have a quality guarantee and we'll get a bunch more families coming in. Don't worry, we will get higher enrollment and without any clear strategy. And we just ignore the numbers. And because we kind of ignore the numbers because we don't want to really face those hard conversations. Yeah. Right. And that's where we are now. Let, let's talk about this for a second. If, if we are sensitive to this enrollment issue, which I think we are. I think district leadership and the school committee is getting concerned about this enrollment issue and the hard decisions that will have to be faced moving forward. If we are sensitive to this, we would clearly show in our actions a concerted effort to do whatever we could to capture as many students as we could to get them into the school system, right? We would do whatever it took to ensure that families are enrolling their kids in the early grades and making easy choices for their kids at the transitional grades. You're, you're reflecting back on the timeline for actually telling students whether or not they have a seat. <laughs> I am. Yeah. I am. I'm saying here, Jill, like if we were to do that, we would have notified yeah. um, our, our families in kindergarten that they had a seat or not. Right. And so kindergarten, Jill, we've delayed notifications for our earliest grade students until the end of March. And yet, and we heard earlier from Mr. Cardet Hernandez, you know, we he had to pay for his son's private school uh, enrollment or in early March. And so we used to, by the way, have those decisions made in early March before you had to make a deposit. And for some reason, nobody talked about it last night. Why? But for some reason, our kindergarten assignments are delayed by weeks. That's a huge problem. The other huge problem, Jill, that they did talk about was this seventh grade notifications. And this is because the exam school policy is, is essentially six weeks to eight weeks delayed. And that delays notification for everybody going into seventh grade. All of our families, are, are, it creates uncertainty for all of them. But only on the BPS side, because everybody else tells you in March whether or not you're in their school or in the MECO program or it, like, you, you know, you, all the other variables. You're right. So MECO and charter schools accept students at this time and want to know if they're coming. Yeah. And our uh, private and parochial schools are accepting deposits right. Right, right now, right? And saying, hey, you got you better lock in. And families won't know if their students will be accepted to an exam school yeah. um, or if they got a different seat in a seventh grade until maybe in May. And our students, as Mr. O'Neill said, are getting scholarships to other schools, full pay scholarships. And the school saying, you must commit to us now. So this issue, if, if we cared about enrollment, our behavior would be substantially different. We would do whatever it took to ensure that our families got a timely decision before they had to make these drastic decisions about other options for them. And by the way, these private schools and MECO and charter schools, they haven't changed their deadline, Jill. Right. They haven't changed their deadline. Right. 
Who's changed their deadline? BPS has changed their deadline. BPS is weeks late for the early childhood seats. BPS is six weeks to eight weeks late on their decisions around seventh grade. If they cared, they would do something to notify families that they had a seat. And Jill, can I tell a quick story? Yeah. I don't yeah. often don't. I don't, don't often no, do No, 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 you should. But yeah. um, I, I used to work in the Boston Public Schools. And one of my jobs at one point was to figure out we were going to be late, I think by a week, on our assignment letters going out to families. And we were really concerned that families were calling us and saying, hey, we have to put this deposit down on a, on a private school and, if we, if, and you're, you're late. You're like a week late. And so I, I remember calling all the private schools and, and parochial schools and saying, would you please waive the deposit for our families so that they can get, because we're late, it's our fault, but please waive the deposit so that we have a week to make the decision. They can get, they can hear from us and they can make a decision between the two options. Yeah. And the schools all complied. I remember, I mean, we could look this up, but I remember it was on school committee meeting. We, we all said, don't worry. We've figured this out with our private school and parochial school partners. They will waive your deposit. It will help you make a decision. <laughs> That's what we did when we were about a week late. Yeah, it was we're the right thing to do weeks, for families. Weeks, they don't care. Yeah, I know. It's the right thing to do for families, but it's also the right thing to do for the district if you actually perceive yourself as, you know, in competition with the other options that families have for education. And, and so it's mind-boggling that nobody seems to be worried about the fact that we're leaving families hanging in terms of their decisions or forcing them in to, in a particular direction because I bet a bunch of those families would prefer to go to Boston Public Schools. The school department is clearly communicating to families that they don't care about them and they don't want them to come to the Boston Public Schools. Yeah, it's too bad. Moving along, the final report of the evening was an update on the superintendent search process. So, Jill, we heard from Mr. O'Neill last night about the dates and an update on the process for superintendent search. So, Jill, we know that the first school committee meeting in April We'll hear two updates from the search, one on the firm, the search firm that will be selected. And so seven search firms have applied for the role of helping to choose a new superintendent. And we'll also see a updated superintendent job description from the search committee. So we'll get those both the first week of April. And, and Jill, it would be interesting to see this job description because this has been a part of a lot of conversation about who are we trying to hire what are the attributes of that person? What is the job? I don't think that we've really landed or heard the school committee sort of land on what they think it is, but it'll be interesting to see that in the first week of April. Yeah, I agree. And we did hear a report from Mr. O'Neill last night about the impressive community engagement so far in the process. There have been about 400 people who have already engaged and joined into the listening sessions that school committee is hosting on the topic of the superintendent search. There's another nearly 400 written surveys that have been submitted. Um, and he summarized the feedback from the community in this way. We have held two sessions too far, so far, and I'll address that a bit more in the future, but some of the themes that have emerged from those two sessions that we've held today are around two things. The first around qualities that families wanna see in the next superintendent. Some of the themes we're hearing around the qualities are first they're looking for a listener, of someone who is collaborative, uh, someone who is the communicator. There's a preference for bilingual, um, someone that is bilingual, um, committed to anti-racism, our equity champions are perceived as transparent, 
and someone who has, and this has been interesting, someone who has spent time in the classroom and understands Boston. And that is a bit different from what we've heard before in previous years when folks would be more focused on experience as a superintendent. What we've heard from the first two sessions is they really want someone who has spent time in a classroom as a teacher, school leader, et cetera. And that theme has come up repeatedly as well as the theme of someone who really understands and knows Boston. So Jill, what I was expecting to hear or see was a chart, you know, with like numbers and and maybe some measurable attributes at the bottom and number of people who said certain attributes in a bar graph to sum up, you know, there's like 400 people who have who've attended these listening sessions. There's another 400 who have submitted written comments. And what we hear instead is like people want a nice superintendent and a good listener and a good communicator. But how many? Like, what are the priorities here? Like, we have to have priorities and they have to. And like people who attend, who spend their time writing their feedback and attending these events deserve to be represented in a much more substantial way than we heard last night. Mr. O'Neill essentially just reported what he may have heard once or maybe a thousand times. We have no idea what was prioritized and what really came up as the major themes of these listening sessions. We have a long way to go to professionalize how we take input from families and turn that around so families know that they were heard. And last night, th this, this sort of quick summary wouldn't make me feel heard as a, as a parent. Right. Well, Ross, following last night, we now have a budget that is moving forward to the city council. So where does this leave us? So Jill, we have a budget. It's done. And we are faced with the same uncertainties we had in the whole budget process and a whole bunch of unanswered questions. We are talking about, you know, how it's going to be really difficult to fill those thousand positions that are currently allocated and are, are new in the budget. And so while there could be a strategy for solving the issues that the district wants to focus on, that's going to be very hard to execute on because it's just hard to hire folks. What are the other things that school committee could be thinking about in terms of how to use that funding to solve the problems that is can solve the problem, is scalable, but is not perpetual in terms of adding to the budget long term and also doesn't require hiring so many heads right now? Absolutely, Jill. We, 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 it's a great question. The district could have invested in contracted services, right? So rather than hiring full-time employees, they could contract with individuals or contract with organizations to provide those services. So they could scale up and then scale down, right? Exactly. And then put the onus on those companies to find capable people of doing the work uh, rather than putting it on the district themselves. They could have worked with community partners and organizations that were that are all over Boston yeah. who provide great services to our kids. They could have worked with them and partnered with them to bring them into schools before and after school programming to provide support for our students. They should be investing in data systems and transparency measures. I mean, we've heard a lot about data over the last number of years around the ability for us to have measurable data, measurable outcomes for things we care about. We could have invested in that. They could have invested in retired teachers on the back end and said, hey, can you come back and we'll contract with you to work in our schools? Or on the front end, they could have worked with interns at all of our universities to bring them in to our classrooms and full-year internships. They should be thinking a lot about professional development for our current staff and training programs. This is a great time to spend resources on training all of the staff in our schools currently. And it's the best way to make sure our students are well-served. 
they could have tried out some innovative programming that may not be in the school system now or bought new materials for our classrooms, which we hear a lot about the lack of, of adequate materials. Jill, we might be able to accomplish these objectives by hiring more people if we can hire more people. But that will only serve to continually and unsustainably grow the budget. It's time to talk about how we can scale our competencies and serve our students without throwing more money and people at the problem. And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Here are some of the questions that we think are worth asking. How will the budget prevent state receivership? How will it close achievement gaps? How will it address special education? What, if anything, will BPS leaders do to begin addressing the reality of declining enrollment? What are the core values guiding the future of the district, and how will these values be reflected in the superintendent search? And of course, there are ways to engage and get involved. Testify at city council budget hearings in the coming weeks and share your thoughts on the district's budget. BPS is soliciting feedback on what Bostonians are looking for in a new superintendent. The link to provide that feedback is in our blog. Attend an upcoming superintendent search public listening session. The dates of those sessions are in our blog. And sign up for our email list at shawfoundation.org to provide feedback on this podcast, receive updates on our work, and be notified when new podcast episodes are available. Thank you for listening to Last Night's School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.